If you talk to anyone in business or anyone who has worked for the last 10 years and you ask him or her what him or her thinks of the year 2008 and you'll get a mixed response. <laughs> 2008 brought the worst financial crisis in the United States since the Great Depression. The crisis affected nearly every worker in America and had ripple effects around the world. So the Dow Industrial Average uh, fell 770 points in one day. The United States economy shrank over 10% in 2008. And in 2008 alone, it's estimated that nearly 2 million people lost their jobs. Now, what caused this crisis? Now, there's a long answer and a short answer to that. Uh, someone with a lot more economic savvy than me will be able to explain it better than I can. Uh, the short of it is uh, that big banks gave too many and too big of mortgage loans to people who could not afford it. Credit agencies approved those loans, and when people couldn't pay on those loans, the banks went to their insurers, and the insurers eventually ran out of money to afford the losses, which led to their bankruptcy, one domino after another, and eventually everybody's affected. The rich wanted to get richer by duping the poor, and then when the rich crashed, the people who depend on them crashed even harder. Perhaps the most amazing thing about the 2008 financial crisis is that no one saw it coming. I mean, the leading advisors and economists didn't predict it. Until the crisis struck, leading economists predicted that the outlook for the world econ economy would actually continue to be strong, and they saw nothing wrong with the American housing market. Well, I think of the false uh, prophets from the book of Jeremiah. Remember those who said, peace, peace, when there was no peace. Well, hindsight, they say, is 2020, but it's largely agreed today that there were plenty of warning signs before the 2008 financial crisis. Warning signs leaders and advisors should have seen. They should have sounded the alarm, but they didn't. They were convinced everything was roses. So here in our passage uh, of James in front of us today, we see James strikes a much different tone than he has earlier in his letter. James sees an impending crisis. He sees the gross corruption of rich people, and he sounds the alarm. He sees a bubble getting bigger and that it's about to burst, and the ramification of this bursting will go far beyond affecting global markets. It will extend into eternity. Now, within James's warning, we find again, James addresses our hearts. He addresses our hearts. This time, it's the use of money that reveals what is in our hearts. And that's a word both to the poor and to the rich. So we're going to continue in the book of James, chapter 5. And we will be in uh, verses 6, uh, or verses 1 to 6 of chapter 5. You'll find it on page 1013 in the Pew Bible. It's red. It looks like this. James 5, verses 1 to 6. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. 
you have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of the Lord. Now, the world of James is much different from the world of Wall Street, much different even from the world of Main Street. The world of James is much more like what we would envision as a third world country. You know, in case we forgot, the world of the Bible is a world without indoor plumbing, uh, air conditioning, electricity, cars, Amazon Prime, and grocery stores. Now, for us in the burbs, lack of rain mainly means that our lawns get brown. Back then, lack of rain meant that you didn't eat. So our circumstances today versus the world of James and the Bible might be a lot different, but you know what? We have the same sins. We face the same possible snares, and we also need the same Savior. So here's the main point or the main takeaway and I think James wants us to get from today in this passage. That's don't throw your life away for what will go away. Don't throw your life away for what will go away. James is going to show us how foolish that is, but not just how foolish that is. He'll show us how sinful it is, how tempting that is. And he even gives hints about how to do the opposite of that. So we have three sections for our time. First, we have a word to the rich, a word to the poor, and a word to all of us. First, a word to the rich. Now, James doesn't waste any time getting to the heavy part of this passage. The whole passage is pretty weighty. You know, look again at verse 1. He says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. We just ask some basic questions of what's going on here. Who is James talking to? Who are these rich people? We get some clues in verse 4 of chapter 5. These are wealthy people who owned and managed land. We've mentioned this background before when we were looking at chapter 2 of showing partiality to rich people. Uh, like it's always been, uh, these are rich who stay rich and get richer through acquiring more property and assets and exploiting those who they take property and assets from. So if you want a good picture of this, uh, think of Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, if you haven't seen It's a Wonderful Life, that's your application today. Go and see It's a Wonderful Life. It's a great movie. Well, James is going to describe what these rich people do. We'll get to that soon. But one of the pressing questions we have to ask from the outset is, are these rich people Christians? Are these rich people Christians? Now, this paragraph of James's letter has a much sharper tone than the rest of his letter, that and other factors leaves us wondering whether or not James is writing to brothers and sisters in Christ here. Now, there's a case to be made for either, whether these are Christians or not. But I think the answer is no. James is not writing to Christians. At best, he's writing to non-Christians who associated with the church in some way. Which, again, as a sidebar, is another reminder that just because you darken the door of a church does not mean that you are a Christian. 
Well, notice here in this section that James never calls these rich people brothers and sisters like he so often does in the rest of his letter. James never calls these people to repent. He's mainly announcing judgment. This is more of an announcement than an exhortation telling them what to do. James writes like an Old Testament prophet here. There are plenty of times in the Old Testament where prophets like Isaiah or Amos, like we read earlier, or Jeremiah or Micah, talked about the sins of people outside of the audience, of their audience they were writing to. So these prophets were writing to mainly Israel, and often they talked about the sins of people outside of Israel. Now why would they do that, and why would James do the same? Now we'll answer that in a bit, but for now, we see the sins of these rich people were causing Christians to suffer, and James writes about what God thinks about that. So what does God think of these rich and what these rich are doing? To go back to verse 1, and this time, notice that James tells us what is coming ahead for these rich people. Just one word, miseries. Miseries that should cause them to weep and howl. I don't know about you, I don't know how many times you have ever seen someone scream and weep because of terror, because they see or are experiencing something so awful. My friend, that, that is not a pleasant thing to remember or think about, is it? Famous commentator Matthew Henry says that James is calling those who live like beasts to howl like beasts. So when we keep reading, we find that the miseries that will come for the rich relate to the stuff that they have. You see, that James says their riches have rotted, their garments are moth-eaten, their gold and silver are corroded. The stuff that they hope in will go away. That in itself is devastating. It's miserable. But more than that, do you see that the stuff that they're hoping in will actually turn on them? So James says that it will be evidence against them it will eat their flesh like fire. So friends, if we live for, if we seek refuge in meaning in anything besides God, it will one day turn on us and devastate us. Just think of how addictions work. We know this from everyday life. Think of how addictions work. We seek refuge in some kind of vice, and then we build up a tolerance so we need more and more of that vice, and then it causes havoc on our lives, and then we go back to find refuge in the very vice that is wrecking our lives. It's a vicious cycle. We're often blind to it. So what they hoped for, these rich people, will go away, and it will destroy them. If you've seen or read uh, The Lord of the Rings, again, that's another application if you haven't, um, this is like the character Gollum from the Lord of the Rings, Smeagol. He's, you know, the little creepy guy who crawls around. Gollum was so obsessed with possessing the one ring to rule them all that it drives him insane, and eventually it destroys him. But the misery is coming upon the rich. What's ahead for them? Don't just relate to the devastation their stuff brings. You read verses 1 to 6. We see that there is a decisive point in their future that all this is leading there's one culminating point. James talks about the corrosion of their gold and silver being evidence against them. Well, this implies that there's going to be some kind of court hearing where their evidence will be weighed. 
James talks about in verse 3 about the last days. Verse 5, he mentions a day of slaughter. This is some kind of breakpoint, some kind of culmination. So he asks, who will preside over this day? Who is the judge who will weigh the evidence? Verse 4 says, the cries of the harvesters have reached the Lord of hosts. This title, Lord of hosts, refers to God as the one who has every possible resource at his disposal. The all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, all-righteous God is the one who will call them to account for what they've done. That is what is coming ahead for these rich people. Now, what is it that they're going to be judged for? What is it that they actually did? While walking through verses 2 to 6, we see at least four different sins of these rich people. At least four different sins. First, in verses 2 to 3, we see that these rich people hoarded what they had. They hoarded what they had. So when do riches rot? When do clothes collect dust? When does jewelry corrode? It's when they just sit there. So these rich people amassed all this stuff and didn't do anything with it. They just let it sit there. They had it just to have it. Now, it should be flat obvious to us that there are better uses of our possessions than just having them sit there. But we can lack this logic oftentimes, can't we? Uh, because we like keeping stuff. We like keeping it to ourselves rather than putting it to better use and rather than giving it away. So maybe you're like me. You've experienced this. Uh, you're going through your closets and you discover maybe a shirt that you haven't worn, I don't know, in two or three years. <clears throat> haven't worn this shirt in two or three years. Oh, man, I forgot I, forgot I had this. I'm going to keep it anyway. <laughs> or you haven't worn this in two or three years. You tell me you still need it? Mm. We're remind, we will remind ourselves a lot of this throughout the sermon. But here's another chance to remind ourselves. Wealth in itself is not sinful. Wealth in itself is not sinful, but we can use wealth in a way that is sinful. One of those ways is keeping everything to ourselves. That is a sinful way to use our wealth, hoarding. So here's a word to us Americans who have bank accounts, closets, attics, storage units. Why do we save what we save? It's okay to save. I'm not saying we shouldn't save, but we shouldn't do it without a purpose. We shouldn't just save to save. That means that just because you're frugal doesn't mean you have to, you're saving money for the right reasons. Another question we should ask ourselves in light of hoarding, we should ask, when do we have too much? When do we have too much? I know there's not a one-size-fits-all answer to this question, but we should take stock of what we have and ask if it could be put to better use than keeping it for ourselves. <clears throat> Second, what these rich people did. They hoarded. Second, these rich people defrauded the poor people who worked for them. Verse 4 says that they held back pay. They cheated their workers out of pay. So with only very few wealthy landowners, everyone else was left to earning their living by hiring themselves out to wealthy landowners. This is a big background of Jesus's day. 
So these workers especially depended on their wages because most of them lived day to day. They received daily wages. Is it any wonder that Jesus told his disciples to pray, give us this day our daily bread? People received daily wages. And what's more is that there were no credit cards back then. There was no system of credit, which means if you withheld a daily wage, then they had nothing else to fall back on. So right away, this action of holding back wages, James says this is not a small deal. God himself sees what they're doing. But like so many others, these rich people, their greed made them blind to their sin. Or at least, it made them not care about their sin. Too consumed with themselves to think of God. Too consumed with themselves to think of how their actions impact other people. So here's just a mini sidebar application in light of cheating people out of their money. If you have any kind of influence with what people get paid, would you do your part to make sure, make sure people are treated well and fairly? I don't know how many of this, us that is in this room, but that's an application. Third thing these rich people did, they lived a self-indulgent lifestyle. They lived a self-indulgent lifestyle. So you look at verse 5. James says, You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Earlier in the service, we read from a portion of James, a story that Jesus told of the rich man and Lazarus. What was the rich man's lifestyle? He says from the very beginning. He says he feasted sumptuously every day, spared no expense on himself. Now, while the rich man feasted, poor Lazarus, who hung out right by the rich man's house, starved. While the rich man feasted, lived self-indulgently, there are truths going on that he doesn't realize are actually true. One of those truths comes from how James starts, verse 5. You see that? Just the very first phrase. We might skip over it. It says, you have lived on the earth. You have lived on the earth. So this self-indulgent lifestyle, it comes from a heart that cares only about what is here. Cares only about what is here. I've heard somebody say, extravagance for what is here is like spending your life savings to decorate your hotel room. That should just be a foolish thing. Now we go back to the story that Jesus told the rich man realized this truth too late, caring about what's just here on earth. Remember, what did Abraham say to the rich man from Jesus' story? He said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Extravagance, self-indulgent lifestyle for what's just here. James says this is like a cow that keeps on eating. The cow's not thinking about what's coming ahead. And the cow doesn't think, you know, what cow would be safer on butcher day? The thin one or the plump one? <laughs> so we ask ourselves, do we spend in such a way that shows that we have forgotten that earth is not our home, that we are just passers through? Again, it's, 
here's a nuance. It's not to say that we can't enjoy nice gifts here and good gifts here. No, even Jesus feasted. Even Jesus allowed Mary Magdalene to use expensive ointment to anoint his feet, ointment that likely cost a year's wages. But there's a difference between enjoying good gifts and living a lifestyle of luxury. There's a difference. There is a difference between having money and money having you. All right, so, so far, James has said these rich people have hoarded, they have defrauded, cheated their workers, they have lived a self-indulgent lifestyle. Fourth, these rich people directly oppressed the poor. They directly oppress the poor. You have condemned and murdered the righteous man, James says. He does not resist you. Now that word condemned is a very Bible-y word, I know. It's another courtroom term referring to some kind of verdict. So the rich use their wealth and power to secure favorable verdicts in courts and to deprive the poor from their money and from their rights. Now, what does James say, what does James mean when he says the rich have murdered the righteous man? It's likely that James has in mind the outcome of the rich people's actions against the poor. Do you remember these rich people have cheated them out of their land? They've withheld wages, which could very well cause poor people to starve to death. So let's summarize where we've been. James is addressing these rich people. We've went over what they did. They hoarded, they cheated, they lived luxuriously, they oppressed poor people. James says also that there are miseries coming for these rich people who are living this way. It is a culminating verdict from God. And what does James tell them to do? Weep and howl. Maybe if we put that in our language, we would say, wake up to this and take it seriously. Wake up to this and take it seriously. Some of us need to do that. Some of us need to do that. Maybe, maybe none of us would say that we are like the rich people James describes. Because, you know, we think about sins with money like sins in general. Somebody always sins in worse ways than we do. Just for a moment, though, I don't want you to think about how other people sin. I want you to think about yourself. To help us do that, I'm going to take us to another passage, Jesus' famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. It takes place from Matthew chapter 5 to chapter 7. Now, in that sermon, Jesus talks a lot about money. He talks about what it means to be rich. He talks about what money shows about us. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. So, friend, what are you quick to spend on? You know, the budget can be really tight, but you'll still find a way to spend on that. What are you stingy to spend on? What gets your leftovers? Do you spend in such a way that shows the stuff you want is just here? Or do you spend in such a way that you know the stuff that it's here won't last? Are you simply dressing up your hotel room? Jesus also said in the Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve 
God and money. You cannot serve God and anything else. So we ask, can you say that how you spend and view money is not self-centered, but instead clearly shows that you love and treasure Christ? Is that even a category for you? Then there's this warning for you, if that's the case, to wake up to this and take it seriously. One more, something that Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This tells us that there is more than one way to be rich. There's more than one way to be rich. So friend, are you impressed with yourself? You don't even have to take it that far. Do you recognize that you need help? Or do you say with something that comes, like something that comes with money, when it comes to money, I have some areas I need to clean up probably, but I can handle it. And all in all, I'm just fine, especially in comparison to other people. Friend, that is not poor in spirit. The poor in spirit know that they need help outside of themselves. But the truth is, friends, before we give our lives to Christ, we live for ourselves. And our money is just one area that shows it. Because even the most charitable person in the entire world can give all, away all of their money just as a secret and subtle attempt to show and prove how good of a person they are. Still do it with selfish motivations. So here is James's counsel. Wake up to this. Take it seriously. Don't throw your life away for what will go away. Now before we move on to the next section, we need to understand that we who have given our lives to Christ, who say he is our master, can still fall into the sins of the rich that James describes here. Can we get an amen to that? <laughs> so just for a moment, recognize that greed affects us more than we think. Greed affects us more than we think. Y'all, we live in the richest country in the history of the world. The history of the world. And ironically enough, we live in arguably the saddest, most depressed, most anxious country in the world. There has never been a society that has been more confused about what we want versus what we need. So we're going to get some low-hanging fruit here. All right? We do not need cable television. We do not need a Netflix subscription. We do not need frappuccinos, as good as they are. We do not need iPhones. Now, we have made wants so essential that they end up becoming needs. And then we end up spending money we don't have on stuff we don't need. Again, I'm not trying to make us paranoid. I'm not saying um, that we can't enjoy good things. I'm not saying that all of our financial decisions are bad. But I am saying we need to realize that we are affected by this. Okay? We can surround ourselves with so many creature comforts that we grow too dependent on them and too entitled to have them. Stuff we don't need. Y'all, we live in a land of excess. We live in the land 
of the Wendy's Triple Baconator. <laughs> we live in a culture that constantly tells us to consume, to indulge, that we deserve it. That the main filter of our financial decisions should be, what's in it for me? You know, that affects not just how we approach money, that affects how we approach life in general. Let me think about this too. I know there are other complicated factors that go in this, and I don't know the entire solution to this. But y'all, American consumption plays a large role in keeping sweatshops open around the world. So maybe it's like you keep that shirt you got from Old Navy not just for six months, but for a few years. I don't know. But we should be grateful for all that's available here. But friends, we should also be careful. We've been given so much. And we could do so much with it rather than keeping it for ourselves. Consumption and greed are the air we breathe. Assume it affects you. Just assume it does. I'm not talking about the people around you that it affects. I'm talking about you. It affects you. Before you, talk, before you talk, start talking about the, your neighbor who's got that other new car, think about you. It affects us even to the point where Jesus can take second place to our possessions. All right, so if James isn't talking about Christians in this paragraph, but his letter as a whole is to Christians, then how does hearing this paragraph benefit the Christians he's writing to? How does hearing what God thinks of these rich people help the Christians who James is writing to? This is our second section, a word to the poor. A word to the poor. This paragraph benefits Christians in at least two ways. It warns them and it gives them hope. It warns them and it gives them hope. This paragraph warns these poor Christians not to envy these rich people, not to wish to be like them, not to worry that they are not like them. The people who read this letter could say, just like us, if only we had a little bit more money, then we could afford this, pay for that, make up for this. Then we would be okay. You know, I, I haven't been through many stages of life, but I've been observant of enough to see each stage of life gives us some reason to worry about not having enough money. Each stage of life, from not having enough allowance to not having enough to get married, at least you think, to not having enough to pay off your credit cards or student loans, to not having enough to make up for when secure, social security benefits will finally kick in. Each season of life has an opportunity for lack of money. This problem is not going away. It's going to be there. You will always have a reason to worry about this. I hate to tell you. Which means we will always have a chance to envy those who have what we don't have. We'll always have that temptation. But then we listen to James talk about those who have what we don't have, especially those who have, tamed, who have obtained it sinfully. And James reminds us that money will not solve all of our problems. We know that, don't we? 
We forget it, though. Money might put a Band-Aid on the problem. You know, Band-Aids, even the, even the nice waterproof ones, they're going to fall off eventually. And they don't work when you need stitches. So we might want the stuff other people have. We might want their comfortful and their stress-free life, at least their supposedly stress-free life, that their stuff can bring. But we do not want what is ahead for people who live for themselves. We do not want that. A cure for envy is the perspective of eternity. A cure for envy is the perspective of eternity. If you want to think about this more, take this afternoon and read Psalm 73. Think about that for a little bit. Well, James's words against the rich benefit the Christians he's writing to by warning them, and not just that, but also gives them hope. He's going to say something similar in the next section we'll see next week. But for now, a word against the rich reminds these Christians where they find hope. Their hope is in the Lord, not in money. Christianity 101. You remember the verse we read for the call to worship? Proverbs 18.10. It says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. When the people in ancient cities saw enemies coming from afar in the distance, they would rush into the gates and up into the tower and be safe. So for all of the enemies that pursue us, even the enemies in our own heart, we do not run toward what will go away and crash. We run toward the one who will never go away and crash and will stand forever. Our hope is in the Lord. Our strong tower is the Lord, not anything else, especially money. So like that Heidelberg Catechism, uh, what is our only hope in life and death? The Lord is our hope, our strong tower in life. So this past Wednesday night, I asked permission to share this. Uh, my parents shared their experience of their business going bankrupt uh, about 20 years ago, uh, a time when they were especially made aware of their limits of not knowing what tomorrow will bring, as uh, we talked about during this sermon. My dad said how they had lost everything. But then my mom quickly chimed in and said, no, we did not lose everything. We did not lose the Lord. Fellow believer in Jesus, Jesus died to purchase you. Purchase you. And he will not cast you out. He will not lose you. So you will not lose him. No matter how much or how little money you have. You have him right now. That is not a consolation for your life. That is your one hope in life. Christian, the Lord is your strong tower, your hope, not just for life, but also for eternity. He is our hope in death. Christian, this here is not our home. The greatest riches here cannot be compared to what is there. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. And that place is with him forever. He will be there. And money won't get us there. Christian, 
The Lord is your strong tower, your hope in life and death for eternity. But also, I think especially crucial to understanding this passage, the Lord is our hope even when we're sinned against. The Lord is our hope when we are sinned against. We think back to the people James is writing to. They were the ones who experienced the cruelty of these rich people, trampled on in court, prevented from feeding their families. And many of us feel less like the rich people in this passage and probably more like the poor people in this passage. Trampled on, working our tails off, tired, and barely squeaking by. And what's worse for these people James is writing to they couldn't do anything about it. it says, James ends verse 6 on a note that seems sad. He does not resist you. So here they were, suffering all of this, and they didn't, at least couldn't, do anything about it. So friends, there will be times to stand for justice. There will be times to stand for what is right, to stand up for ourselves. But there will also be times when people who wrong us just get away with it. Flee, escape, aren't hold, held accountable. And how do we go on even after that happens? How do we go on? Think of how many ways others can wrong us and sin against us, even in the area of money. What do you say to the person who is hurt and can't get workman's comp? What do you say to the people who barely make minimum wage and get treated like garbage by all of their customers? What do you say to those whose bosses have unrealistic standards? What do you say to those who constantly have to put in extra hours and not get paid for it? This is what we say. Our hope is in the Lord, even when we're sinned against. Why? Because he went down that path before we did. Oh, Jesus is the one true, righteous, and innocent person. The only one ever to live. And he was wronged, sinned against. The justice system cheated him, falsely condemned him. Someone who was with him for three years betrayed him. Why? For the love of money. And not much money at that. And did Jesus resist? No, but he could have. Instead, Peter says in his epistle, he trusted the one who judges justly. And he died for those who killed him. Our Savior knows all of our weaknesses. Our Savior knows what it means to be sinned against. He lived them. And he is with us in our weaknesses when we are sinned against. We hope in him. Because for all that he was sinned against, sin did not win. He did. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. When we read the sins of the rich people here in this passage, they are words to all of us. Who among us hasn't hoarded? Who hasn't spent selfishly? We could put it differently and ask, who among us has done all that we can for those in need? Everything that we possibly could. Who among us has done that? 
We know what's right. We know what we should do, but we don't do it. We can't do it. So maybe we just guilt ourselves into change, into giving, so we give more money away. Is that it? You know, we've all seen those commercials with uh, Sarah McLaughlin, and she's got the little dog sitting next to her. You know what I'm talking about? As soon as you see Sarah McLaughlin, boom, channel change right away. <laughs> Is a dog asking money for about abused animals, a very worthy cause? But man, just talk about loads of guilt in that commercial. It's like it's an uncomfortable amount of guilt in those commercials. Well, the truth is we are guilty. We don't give enough. But shaming ourselves to change will work to inspire us maybe for a little bit, but not for our whole lives. So we read in this passage how the rich withheld wages from their workers. The truth is each one of us have wages coming to us. We too have committed the sins of these rich people. We too have the wages that their sin brings. And what are those wages? Romans 6, 23. Death. The wages of sin is death. But the beautiful and glorious truth is that those wages that are coming to us can mercifully be withheld because they were given to Jesus. Jesus took all that was owed to us. He took the wages, and now they can be withheld from us. He wept and howled so that we can sing and rejoice and go free. No other master, let alone especially money, will die for you. All other masters, if you live for it, will demand eventually that you die for it. No, Jesus is the master who dies for us so that we may live through him and for him. That is a treasure that can never, ever be taken away. Friends, if we just have to say the fly obvious, Jesus is better than money. Jesus is better than anything that money can get us. Jesus is the treasure that makes the riches of this world lose their grip on our hearts. Jesus is the treasure that makes us thankful no matter what we have. Having Christ, we can let go of the stuff that's just will stay here. We have the one who lasts forever. We no longer have to chase what will go away. And, what, and when what will go away comes our way, we can freely and joyfully give it away. We're going to end the sermon in a different way than we normally do. In your bulletin on the pastoral prayer and sermon page, you'll find a famous quote from missionary Jim Elliott. You have likely heard this quote before. I have likely shared this quote before. Jim Elliott was a missionary to Ecuador who lost his life for the sake of Christ, but he did not lose his greatest treasure of all. You all see that? I'm going to read it together. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we say, you are better than money. And oh, how we forget. We are so affected by our atmosphere of sin and consumption and greed. Search our hearts to see if there is any wicked way in us and draw us back to yourself. Give us clear eyes to see you and the surpassing worth that you are and keep us from the sins of the rich in this passage. And, O oh Lord, help us to trust you when we are sinned against, knowing that you empathize with each one of our weaknesses, that you have walked them before we did, and that you are with us in them, and you conquered them. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.